0: Association.
1: Association. Association. Association.
0: That was such uber ponage.
1: Hello, fellow nerds from the studios of WBNS FM in Columbus, Ohio. This is the Nerd Association Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Barnett. And I'm your other host, Mark
0: Finch. We're going to jump right into it. Daniel. Yes. What do you think of when I say
1: Cliff Beast? Well, I say that I think of this movie that we're talking about. I don't know. There's no good way of like there's nothing else that could apply to. Right. I mean, I do think of things like Sharknado comes to mind <laughs> because of the sort of style of, of worn out action movie that that this represents, the sort of monster movie that it represents. But, yes, we are going to be talking about The Bubble today, which is a Judd Apatow joint and has everybody in it. Everybody's who's ever acted is in it either as as uh, actors or as themselves this movie if you haven't seen it is one of the most meta pieces of filmmaking <laughs> i've seen in a long time and you know this comes on the heels of our last episode episode 75 where we talked about a lot of things but among them was this movie the bubble and as we were discussing it i said you know I might actually be able to get behind this movie, and I'm I'm never I'm not usually a person to, to whom you would recommend a comedy because I'm always the the buzzkill in the room.
0: That's and it was interesting because my hypothesis on the movie, the reason we were talking about it, was because in my opinion, it was sort of the end, the end of like me extending the leash for Judd Apatow, who had a, a great run right. of directing and producing movies in the mid two thousands to twenty fifteen. Ish time, maybe, uh, you know, I would have to look up the exact dates when someone came out, but it was around that time. And so uh, even since then, I've been like, oh, yeah, I like Judd Apatow movies. And so I checked this one out and I was not a huge
1: fan. Well, Judd Apatow sort of became known for this a certain brand of comedy. Right. Right. And as we kind of discussed last time, almost in the sort of vein of the 90s and 2000s SNL kind of humor. And carrying on that with a little bit more of a stoner tinge most of the time, you know? And so, yeah, he kind of be. You, you, usually, you hear like it's a Judd Apatow movie. You know you know what to expect. There's a certain brand of comedy that comes with that. And it's largely like fart jokes and buddy comedies and getting I would call, high. And, you I think know. I called
0: it elevated boner humor.
1: Yeah. <laughs> elevated boner humor. So, the premise it's interesting because you and I during the heat of the thick of the pandemic said, like there's going to come a day where people are going to have to, they're going to start making TV shows and movies again. And they're either going to have to act like it never happened. If they're setting things in a sort of contemporary world, or they're going to have to lean into it. And we're going to start seeing quarantine romances. And of Mm. course now quarantine comedies. And what does that look like? And this film takes that to the I mean the nth degree and as I said it's a very meta film it's a film about a film about a film being made <laughs> in the in the thick of the quarantine and sort of loosely based on the production of Jurassic World Dominion I believe oh is that what it's is that where it got some of its okay right so the idea being that uh, they, you know they're making this dinosaur movie and in order to make it everyone just has to like be in quarantine together and form the bubble so that they can film this movie. And part of that is sort of, are we making a movie that's worth all of this headache? And of course, Jurassic World Dominion, you might be able to argue it one way or the other. Cliff Beast 6, <laughs> which is the closest they could get to making a Jurassic Park movie, maybe not so much. It was, I mean, it's essentially Tropic Thunder with.
0: Quarantine aspect instead yeah. of being instead of being lost in the Vietnamese jungle, right? They're in a quarantine situation during the COVID pandemic,
1: and of course they're locked together in this big, beautiful old British estate. But these actors show up; they've been in uh, the five or six movies together, five movies together, and the first thing that happens when they show up is they put them in quarantine for two weeks. And and I thought that little montage was or the times that they showed those montages of them being in quarantine were very relatable and very familiar and just like banging your head against the wall like Well, oh my and
0: that's God. that's where Judd Apatow excels, right. is the relatability because all of his other really famous movies are like just about people and relationships. Maybe there's a workplace mixed sure. in there or like there's knocked up where they're surprised pregnancy or yeah. Super bad. High school kids looking to score beer for a party. Like right. Most people can relate the, the to those kind of The premise is
1: usually pretty relatable, exactly. So
0: this, you can relate to that. You're right. And that's uh, the first one. The first time I saw it, I was like... I don't know if I forgot or whatever, but the second time I watched it, it's like all, what's her, Karen Gillan? Yeah. She, they focus the on her the first time they do that. Yeah. At, at a different point in the movie, they go back, and they're all in quarantine again, and then they do, like, a bigger As you're meeting more of the with characters, that. right? Yeah. And so those parts, yeah, those work because that's the kind of stuff that I think Judd Apatow excels
1: with, but- if you've heard the other episode no no spoilers here i don't think it's a very good movie well and and the critics would agree with you i think it got like 24% on rotten tomatoes 34 on metacritic and so yeah not particularly well received i think for people who have some sort of affection for or allegiance to the the quote unquote apatow film this is not that or largely not that and i uh, as we talked about last time I've never been a fan (laughs) and I've not watched all of them, but I've watched enough of them to be like, this is the brand and I'm not a fan of it. Mm. I will tell you one of the things that immediately struck me, and I think it was just because it was in this big, beautiful British manner, but even the way some of the instrumentation was, it almost felt like if Wes Anderson made a dick joke movie, (laughs) because a lot of the visuals kind of had that almost grand Budapest hotel feel. And so, you know, if Wes Anderson decided he was going to make a raunchy comedy, it had a lot of those visuals in, in portions, certainly not for the whole thing. But it was it was very interesting because in some ways, again, it's relatable in the sense that, like, this is what quarantine looks like for a lot of us. Right. Including these people who are supposedly big, famous actors. Presumably, this is what it was like for the actors that made Jurassic World. Like. I don't know that necessarily there was any sort of insider information into that process, but you can imagine that that's how it was, that there was a sort of ridiculous juxtaposition of living the high life in this beautiful hotel amongst rich, famous, beautiful people. And yet having to do all the things that the, every person has Mm -hmm. to do. (laughs) And certainly aspects of like cabin fever and what that does to be
0: in more of an isolated position when you're, unless you're like a recluse, like,
1: Famous celebrities are constantly going different places and seeing different people. Right. They're always on the move. It's sort of an equalizer. Also interesting because the production crew, the people who are running the hotel, they basically get to go about their business. It's the rich, famous people who are normally used to doing anything they want to do that are, are suddenly put upon. Yeah. You can't leave. You
0: can't do this. You can't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, we talked about before that the struggles of the wealthy is a thing that used to be way more interesting to society. I do think that where it loses some of its relatability and some of its interest is this idea that like, Oh yeah, we're supposed to believe that these actors are having this really hard life. I get it. <laughs> yes. That the idea, the, the whole concept is like, they're just like you and they're having to go through the same things that you might have. But it, that only goes so far. right? <laughs> right.
0: And well and then like there's a question too of like the relatability of it and like the lengths that it gets to. Yeah. And then it's like, well, is this supposed to be like completely off the wall or am I supposed to believe that like at what point and maybe there's a point in the middle of the movie where that just kind of shifts over and it becomes more absurd in that sense, but yeah. I don't think a movie studio, for example, would hire a security team that would blow off the hand yeah. <laughs> of one of its famous
1: actors for trying
0: to escape the quarantine.
1: Well, and the implication there was that the movie studio certainly doesn't have the best interest of the actors in mind, but also that the public doesn't, because Mr. Best is sort of revealed to be a super fan of the franchise who's there to make sure the movie happens at any cost. Mm. Not only is he this sort of expertish security type guy who's clearly off his rocker ex-military type guy. And for some reason has more hair than he could ever yeah. do anything <laughs> with. Not only that, but that he's also a stand-in for the fans that don't care about the well-being of the the performers either. Again, I'm not saying oh, we you know, actors are people too, but I do think that for your average viewer, that sympathy only goes so far. And I think if Judd Apatow's point was like actors and directors are people too like okay thanks yes that's true i we'll we'll pause and think about it for a moment but at the end of the day i'm not crying about the actors who are getting paid millions of dollars to make a film and
0: you're talking about you know a a pretty good cast and a director who's been around a long time pretty entrenched people who it's like oh yeah you
1: had that year was bad Get in line. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember it too. So yes, it loses a lot of its relatability there. And and maybe if it's, if it's unlike other Judd Apatow films, that's one of the places where it's like you're trying to do the Judd Apatow relatability thing, but you're picking the wrong folks.
0: My main takeaway of why I think it kind of falls apart is something that is supposed to be like a satire of like making a movie, doing all that. That's something that like you really need to buy into and be like really precise yeah. with. Cause what exactly are you trying to say? What is the, the point of this movie? And Judd Apatow movies are not that it's point of camera. Here's a situation. Let's ad lib a little bit. Right. Let's go for, and you can tell in this movie that they're doing that, Yeah. that these are just, ah, we're throwing out some jokes and stuff and that can work for certain things. But this one, I felt like lost its way a little bit when it's like, what are you trying to say? with like the, uh, Kate McKinnon scenes really stand out to me as just like, they just let her go for a while right? and then they use the ones they thought were the funniest. And it's like, yeah, but if you're trying to really have some teeth with what studio heads are like and how difficult that can be to deal with as a producer or a filmmaker, that to me, again, I feel like needs to be more intentional in the jokes that you're having that
1: character tell. There's almost a preachy aspect to it. And I think that's what is off putting, Right on one hand it's trying to be this relatable comedy but on the other hand there's a little bit of it that's saying we film producers and directors and actors we've had it rough too and again i don't it's not that i don't think famous people are people too and as you said you had a rough time get in line like so did the rest of us well yeah and so that never really turns into like that situation where it does
0: seem like oh man yeah, you know, that actually is like way tougher than anything most right. people have gone through, because that's what happens in Tropic Thunder. Yes. They think they're making a movie, they're living this lavish lifestyle, and then they go, you know what, let's put these guys actually through the ringer and make them really right. film it on location. And then they still think they're filming the movie,
1: but they're really just Surviving. lost yeah. in, the, in the jungle. <laughs> and now, the film's shortcomings, I think, are largely in the writing and in the message. But... The part that's a lot of fun to watch is just watching them have the time of their lives. You can tell these actors are having a great time making this movie. Mm. And as you said, there's clearly a lot of improvisation. There's clearly a lot of sort of back and forth between these actors making things up on the spot or riffing on something. And yes, that is the thing that's charming about an Apatow film usually is that the actors are given a lot of leeway to to put their own spin on things and to to bring their own things to the table. You kind of feel like you're sitting there with a group of buddies. Yeah, exactly. And that's where I thought this film was really successful because it was just a lot of fun to watch. It was a lot of fun to watch these people, these actors having a good time being actors. And it was a and it was a great cast. And and you can tell like there's this this message about halfway through the film where it was like if we work together, we can do anything and of course in this case it's to get out of the filming. <laughs> You feel like maybe that comes a little bit from a real place, not necessarily like, oh, we're miserable filming and we need to get out. But like, oh, we're having a lot of fun being an ensemble cast. I can't say off the top of my head among this group who's worked together before and who hasn't. Like, I don't have that depth of knowledge. Besides Leslie Mann and her daughter. (laughs) No, but yes. But I guess what I mean to say is like I can't think of a time when uh, the majority of these people or even several of them have been in a film together. And so giving this group the opportunity to just like you get the impression kind of hang out and get get to be buds. Mm-hmm. There are moments in the film where it's like, OK, I actually think that energy is coming through some. Uh, and it's a lot. It's a fun group, too. I mean, we, we, we talked about it last week. A couple of people like Guz Khan, who, again, you wouldn't know unless you knew British television more. But like he's clearly having a great time. Karen Gillan, I didn't really know much of her except from the Avengers, Guardians yeah, of the and she
0: was in uh, the the Rock Jumanji.
1: Oh, I didn't even. Yeah, I didn't think about that. But yeah, she. So she's done even a similar kind of thing to this mm-hmm. in real life. And of course, Pedro Pascal, who is just so lovable. And of course, we t- we always talk about him in the context of the Mandalorian, but he is just he's great, and he's just out to have fun. and He does it. He like throws himself into it hundred percent. And especially, I have to side note for a second, there was clearly the fulfillment of some fan fiction, having Pedro Pascal and Daisy Ridley have like a sex scene together. Like somewhere <laughs> they found that on the internet and said, you know, it would be funny because I'm sure some Star Wars nerds out there have written that mm. <laughs> that scene where Mando meets Ray. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that a, was a little bit of a funny moment. Too. I'd
0: forgotten about that one though. That's like the cameo. That's like the best indication of like they were just asking anybody
1: who Let wanted it, yeah. to come by. Hey, the you want to be the in the an Apatow movie? And yeah. of course, that you know they're in. They're just outside of London at these at these studios. And so any British actor, not that other actors didn't show up, but anyone, any British actor, sort of working in the vicinity like, hey, James McAvoy, do you want to hang out? Like, hey, Benedict Cumberbatch, do you want to do a little bit of face capture for us? Like or a little bit of voice for us is just very it's very fun and very charming. It's and it's neat to see. I, it reminded me a
0: little bit you know i was talking about like the precision of of these jokes right. and how you have to if you're really trying to say something or it, it different aspect but it kind of reminded me of uh 2016 ghostbusters sure. where all of those all of those women are actually really funny actors and i like some of the movies they've been in for yeah. sure but like a ghostbusters movie is not a point and ad lib type movie correct it and is. i was getting that those are the similar feelings i got while watching this it's like while some of these are individually funny i feel like i'm watching an snl sketch get off the rails yeah in certain parts it, it, this movie was not the right time for trying to escape this and everything's heightened and they're in the helicopter and they're trying to figure it out right and then even the guy flying the helicopter is enamored with the monkey taking a bath Video, like that's not the right tone for what I think this movie was trying to be.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. There were beats that were sort of missed because the funnier move, let's use that scene as an example. The funnier move is everybody's watching the monkey take a bath except for Keegan Michael Gee, who's like, Are you out of your minds? <laughs> that's the yeah, funnier and That's, that's and then, the funnier beat to take, I think.
0: Because then it, oh, then maybe there's a little bit of a message of like, oh yeah, the actors can kind of be vapid and like get lost in their own stuff. And it's like, I guess that's sort of the joke, but like you'd think the guy who's flying a helicopter on his own for the first time would not lose sight of that no matter what you put in front of them.
1: I was certain, so you know the famous Curse of the Twilight Zone film, and of course there mm-hmm. was the, the the helicopter accident that killed several actors. I was sure that joke, I don't want to say joke, but I was sure that was coming, that trope was coming, because it just seemed like you know the helicopter felt more like a Chekhov's gun and less like a <laughs> like right. KPH engine, because this is going to be an escape route at the end. And so when it was presented and given the nature of the film, I thought, oh, no, like we're going to see this be the reference. And so st- as I watched that scene, I thought, surely, surely that reference is coming. And I sort of was clinching the whole time. Of course, then, it didn't. But yeah, and then they just fly away. And like he completely figures it out to the point yeah, where he's he was flying, flying over through London. London yeah. And it's like, I don't know if you can just do that. <laughs> no, you, you cannot. The, te- the test was, you know, you said, here's an Apatow film. I... Normally you would enjoy it. You didn't enjoy this one. And I said, well, based on the trailer, I think I might kind of find this funny. And I will say for about the first half, I was pretty on board okay. and I, I didn't like belly laugh or, you know, double over, but I found funny. It was good enough for a Netflix turn on that it just it's on the TV now. And I'm not, I watched the whole thing. I watched it even sort of a time and a half to make sure that I knew it was going on because I had sort of gotten distracted while watching it the first time and i did find that once we got into the heavier like oh actors are people too message and like look at all the bad things the studio puts them through about when beck showed up which i love beck but about when beck showed up i was like all right we get it. <laughs> this is really quite I forgot dumb. about that scene, but I when I am watching it, you are right. You are like, what is what is this about yeah. anymore? That was that was a moment where I just sort of rolled my eyes and was like, all right, we get it. <laughs> it's like, yes, making a movie is like any other workplace with shitty bosses who only care about productivity. <laughs> yes, we can relate to that. That was when I was like, all right, fine.
0: Well, and that's probably a, a part of it too. Is like, if you are not gonna get a better piece of satire from it like it i i complain about the length of movies i feel like a lot but this one drags
1: yes it could be tightened up in quite a few places and and that was certainly i i i found myself tempted to skip around on the on the sort of track to see like okay can i skip the rest of this scene but then well i have to talk about it so i probably do need to watch all of
0: it yeah that's well and that's the thing is like it comes together as a collection of funny things they thought about maybe while they were doing, going through quarantine and yeah. maybe some stories they were told, but then it doesn't come together as like, again, like what's this movie actually supposed to be about? Oddly enough, one of the ones I think, uh, maybe it's just cause I, I kind of like TikTok, but I'm not really into like the dancing stuff on TikTok. There's so much random stuff on TikTok, but I thought those were done well. Yes. I thought that looked realistic. Like, like that's what this famous TikTok girl would do if she was all of a sudden, on a movie set.
1: I'll be honest. I didn't know what to expect from Iris Apatow, but I found her character to be interesting and I thought she was very good for that part. And I, yes, I thought the sort of TikTok celebrity being shoehorned into a movie to get the younger crowd and like to come watch Mm it was very like spot on and did find those parts to be charming. Like I said, I thought Pedro Pascal was hilarious and very charming as this like guy who clearly doesn't give two craps. He's just there for the paycheck and to do the drugs and to like, have sex with random fans. And I will say I was sad for Maria Bakalova's character, Annika, mm-hmm. because I feel like she is probably, I mean, we know from the Borat movie, like she can be very good and very funny. And I felt like this was almost the exact same kind of character where it was like this sort of vaguely Eastern European character who comes from this like strict background where it was like, no, you will meet my father and you will sign. blah, blah, blah. And it was like, I feel like that she's being typecast as this character and that's not very fair to her.
0: And I thought it was going to like subvert it and like she was just full on messing with him. Yes. But then it turns out no she actually is like enamored and in love with him and want and she's like I came here 3 hours early to make sure I didn't miss the helicopter ride yeah. like she Like I thought that would be funny to me that like all oh, these stupid rich actors are in my hotel I'll just mess with right. one of them if he approaches me and that's what I thought at first, and then I again I don't know exactly where it was going.
1: Yeah, that the and the sort of the the sort of side actors that were the production staff were charming and funny, but you felt like they could have been given a little bit more of that sort of, uh, yeah, I will mess with them or or again the fact that they had so much freedom to do kind of whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm where the actors were being locked down and subjected to all these tests and things like that. They, that was a, a part that probably could have been funnier and could have been played with a little bit more that, that really didn't end up paying off
0: from that, that group of uh, characters. I did think the like flirty eyes or whatever that scene, I thought that was funny. Yeah, That's clearly like, I think that was written, but then definitely there's like ad libbing to that Correct. performance and they just kind of let it go on for a little bit. I do think, I thought that part was kind of funny. I love Fred Armisen, I don't know if oh, he's I too. right for this role, but like he still was doing his normal Fred Armisen stuff, so I got to enjoy some of it. I think
1: he, I think he is good for this role because he's just like the 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 dope that gets put into this situation where suddenly he has to make decisions and be important. It's very, um, if you ever watch Portlandia, yeah, it's very much a Portlandia character, and right. I did I did enjoy that where and he take he takes himself pretty seriously, but not. But he's also just some dude that worked at Home Depot and made a documentary about tiles, and it was just the like only got person. away from him. And, yeah. now he's... and now he's in charge of this film. Well, that,
0: that was a good comment too, because that's kind of how they've been doing some of these movies, like. Marvel has done this. Like a right. guy makes a nice indie movie, Yeah. and they go, "Okay, that guy has you know he's he's, he's somewhat of an auteur, yeah. and we can take him and say you have to do everything we say
1: because you're not match. an established guy, and, right? But do some of but do your, some of your creative stuff right. and bring your your flair to it. No, there's a lot of truth in this movie, I'm sure, and I think that's where the I think that's where the disconnect sort of happens because. It doesn't quite know if it's a satire or if it's a traditional comedy. Mm-hmm. And I th- that identity crisis is, I think, the thing that slows it down. But that said, as a person who never thought I would be saying these words, I would say, go watch this Judd Apatow movie. <laughs> because it's funny enough. It's like, it's two hours. It's not that bad. If you want something that's sort of light, I wouldn't recommend that you're going to just love it and it's going to become one of your new favorites. But... If you want to see something that has some of that flavor and also has is about an interesting time in our history and about how that's going to affect probably the look and feel and tone of a lot of movies going forward. I mean, I don't think this is the last film that we see that that plays on this idea, like the quarantine and pandemic and either plays on the idea, create not quite a docudrama, but like. This is pretty close to real life. We all can relate to this sort of pandemic type movie. Or, you know, I think the flip side of that that we haven't seen much of yet, but I suspect we'll see a lot more of our horror type films and those sorts of films that take on the, the pandemic maybe a couple years down the road when it's not yeah. quite so still in our faces. I, It'll be interesting to see. And is I, I And in that way, is it sort of ahead of its time? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> I
0: don't think I would recommend it. Really, I, I don't. I watched it a second time, and Thinking I was maybe... still just kind of like, hey, "I'm just not having that good of a time." You're right; there are individual jokes that are good, and that's what I like. Yeah, it felt like a, it felt like a collection of like what funny things could happen during quarantine on a on a movie set, and then we just kind of linked them all together, and to the point where. Like going back to like Tropic Thunder is like I thought Tropic Thunder like still looked good when it was doing some of its like action sequence, sure. and this one goes the it doesn't even tr- I mean it's it's intentional. Its most but actiony it's sub-
1: sequences are when it's they're trying to escape. Yeah, but yeah. like the movie that they're making looks
0: terrible. Yeah. Like
1: it does not look good at all. Well, uh, I thought another interesting, and we're we're pretty far, but uh, truth in film or truth in the movie. The green screen sections where they're in these like, you know, hellscape of a burned out forest and then it's like cut and they're just in front of a green screen running on a treadmill. Yeah, and there's like a little bit of like foam rocks around them, that's, but everything else is just completely vague. <laughs> that looks like um, some of the set set photos from The Hobbit. I don't know if you've ever heard the, about the story with The Hobbit. So Ian McKellen, who plays Gandalf, basically didn't get to do almost any of his stuff in new zealand he was i think doing a stage show at the time and so he couldn't do most of the stuff with the rest of the cast and so essentially when they would need gandalf to be in with the rest of the dwarves and the and bilbo they would have you know a stand-in who would put on the wig and wear the the costume and he was you know some tall guy and they would only shoot him from behind or from a three-quarters behind angle and Ian McKellen would film the face shots basically in costume in front of a blue screen in a studio in London. And Ian McKellen famously said like almost quit acting because it was such a miserable experience for him to be like, to be doing this with no feedback and basically just looking into a camera in a booth in front of a screen. And so I, I got sort of hints of that, that, nowadays again this sort of plays in that the studio is just trying to make a buck you know studios used to fly to location or they you know at least you drive to the t you know the tmz in california Mm -hmm. and have some sort of change of scenery now you just get stuffed into a studio in front of a green screen with foam rocks and that's what you're doing and it's a lot harder for an actor to to you know get anything right and we're supposed to When they have the two guys on wires in the fake pterodactyl-type costumes, we're supposed to think, like, oh, dumb actors, they need something to look at. But it would be hard. Yeah. (laughs) It would be hard to do that. That is one place where I can sort of relate. Like, the the glitz and glamour of old Hollywood, I think, is pretty much gone. And I think we're supposed to get a little bit of that, too. I think the...
0: Apatow daughters are good actresses, and they've been around stuff for basically their entire right. lives now. And uh, Maude Apatow, is, uh, she was in Euphoria, and so mm-hmm. then this is Iris Apatow, the younger, her younger sister. And there, I don't think she did a bad job. I, there was parts of it where I'm like, is this... Judd just trying to like put together like look at what my daughter can do because sure. like a real almost at the end she has a choreographed fight scene that does not need to be in the movie really at all except for I guess there's like a double agent character that they could have they could have done a little bit more with that there sure. was just the only thing that was there was like people were just like oh why is that girl always here and they said that a few times throughout the movie but they never really had like a scene where it showed what did she do to help the production you know the production team where was she giving this information what was it actually stopping all that kind of stuff but either way they get to that scene where they're fighting and I'm just like this is just like my daughter can do choreographed fight scene that's the feeling I got when watching that part
1: yeah and I I agree with you that it wasn't set up well it would be it would have been better if at any point during the movie you had seen her learning fight choreography yeah (laughs) do you know what I mean because I think that the point of that last series of shots is These actors have learned enough doing these movies to sort of be action heroes in their own respect. Like you have, because when
0: he's fighting the director, he's
1: doing the that choreographed fight. Yeah, but but that's the one that looks dumb and goofy. It would have been better if they would have played it a little more seriously, quite frankly. And of course, you have Guz Khan who shoots the guy with the bow and arrow, and Mm -hmm. you have Keegan Michael Key who learns enough how to fly a helicopter to be competent it would have paid it would have been just a little bit better if they had given her at any point like and i suppose the dance choreography is supposed to play into it i don't know i don't know but no i think that's a stretch your point's well taken it's but that said i think she was a better actor and a better in this role than i think people might have expected because you're right sometimes it just seems like nepotism Unless they actually do a good job <laughs> and you can actually justify the casting.
0: I suppose on a rewatch, there's one thing that the double agent girl does that when you're watching it a second time, you're like, okay, i she's, she like convinces Iris Apetow's character to not let Karen Gillen's character post that TikTok. Right. That's like, we're, this is not going well for us. This is not yeah. bad. And it's like, okay, maybe that is part of her deal but i felt like if they wanted that character that and that inclusion in the movie that they needed to be a little bit more with it well,
1: and that's where you run into having too many members of the ensemble right it's hard unless you have a, a two hour six mm-hmm. minute movie and maybe even then to make them all have storylines that sort of pay off and are believable and interesting yeah and of course you can't and you don't necessarily have to with every character but right that could have been a much more interesting angle that they could have played with a little bit more and kind of it kind of fell flat Yeah, and then, like we talked about
0: the uh the Daisy Ridley one and then like John Cena has a similar one where yeah. like did he just film that at home
1: yes i probably
0: right <laughs> and just send it into him
1: well <laughs> certainly i mean you you made that mention of Kate McKinnon just I mean, she probably just sat in front of a laptop and filmed that, right? John Lithgow, I loved seeing him for the few seconds we saw him. (laughs) I forgot he was there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they probably a lot of these, and maybe even Benedict Cumberbatch. You probably could have just done that sitting in front of a laptop. Beck, same situation. Somebody just held a cell phone and taped him in his own studio for, you know, one minute or whatever. And in a way, that's kind of charming. That like basically anyone who would say yes, they were just like, you'll even just shoot shoot us like three or four minutes of footage and send it to us. We'll use it. And
0: that's what a normal Apatow movie is supposed to be. Just like a sort of situation, but it's not really the point. It's just like a chance to throw everything at the wall, see what sticks. Anybody want to come in and do a scene with us? We'll riff for a little bit. It'll be fun. And that's what yeah. For me, this movie needed a little more direction.
1: oh I think again, the the issue is the identity crisis. It's not quite sure what it is. And, it, and it's, I think, had it leaned a little bit away from the traditional Apatow style of humor, we might be having a different kind of conversation about how this was an interesting think piece. It could still be funny, mm-hmm. but it would be more s- satire. It just didn't quite land either in the comedy camp, the sort of, you know, dick joke camp or <laughs> or the satire camp.
0: Another part that bugged me was at the very end, they did like, it was either... Extra or entertainment tonight, or and whatever. Yeah, entertainment tonight. And like, there were parts of that that they were trying to make it look like it was a segment on entertainment tonight. And then there were other parts of it that was like clearly like movie quality stuff. And it's like, make up, what is this scene supposed to be? Right. Make up your mind. Because I go back to like, uh, this is an Appetite produced one, but at the beginning of Forgetting Sarah Marshall, he's sitting there watching TV and they're talking about Sarah Marshall. So you're, they're introducing you to that character, but the, the, the segment is very
1: believable
0: That is like mm-hmm. this is something you would see on extra or they do it at the beginning of get him to the Greek as well. Yeah. Um, and then in this one using it, the
1: frame narrative more effectively.
0: Yeah. In this one, it's like this didn't this could have just been another scene tacked on about like where these characters are like a little epilogue type thing. Instead, they frame it in the entertainment tonight. And I just, it to me, it wasn't believable at all in that. And then it comes back at the end and you're like, oh, yeah, we're
1: watching entertainment. Tonight it felt like that. I think to you to sort of jump off of that point, if the end of the film is supposed to suggest that we've been watching a documentary the whole time that we didn't know we were watching, which is the point, right? We're supposed to be by the end thinking, Oh, we're watching the footage that this other camera guy had filmed. Mm -hmm. I wish they would have had more of the shots be in that hand cam style right it would have it would have made it a little which they shouldn't do the whole movie in that style but it would have made it a little, you might have gotten along the way a little bit more of like, something's going on here. Maybe some hidden
0: camera-esque shots or like right. overhearing a conversation that, like when the director and uh, uh, David Duchovny, right, yeah. his when they're like bickering, like yeah. that one could be like, oh, maybe we're not actually supposed to be seeing this right. conversation.
1: Yeah. Or even a little bit more like The Office where at the end they had a few more of those sort of uh, one shot, the one Talking camera. heads. Yeah. yeah. Had they done that... Even a little bit throughout the movie, it would have, I think, been a payoff for the audience who have been like, wait, what's something different going on here than we're. And I, yeah, it was a, a wasted opportunity where we could have, by the end, been like, oh, we're actually watching this as Spinal Tap. Mm-hmm. We thought we've been watching, but it's like, a, it's the movie within the movie within the movie. And we just, yeah. And we just don't, again, that's sort of, it almost feels cheap. It almost feels like, oh, it was a dream the whole time. Yeah. And it's like, oh yeah,
0: remember that character that was in two scenes? Yeah. Like he, he annoys the director at one point. He tries to
1: interview the TikTok girl. He gets in Leslie Mann's face for a second. Yeah.
0: That's pretty much it. And then it's like, oh yeah, this guy also made a documentary about it and it's super successful. Yeah. And Tropic Thunder ends in a similar way. And I can't remember exactly what happens, but I know there's something of like the making of the movie becomes the popular aspect of what they just did.
1: Yeah, I guess the like I said, the point is, I mean, think about how this is Spinal Tap was one of the first where you're watching a movie, but you're actually watching a movie about a movie being made. Mm -hmm. But they set that up enough that you understand like you're watching the making of the documentary in the film. You're not just watching a film and i think you have to rely on the fact that your audience gets a reward it's a, it's called a payoff for a reason we feel rewarded if we're like oh something else is going on here it, where you know you figure out halfway through oh actually i think we're watching uh, i think we're watching the documentary of the mm-hmm. film i think that that's a lot more satisfying of conclusion when that conclusion arrives
0: I wonder, too, with like that, I, I guess maybe the studio signs off on it, but then there's a part where Kate McKinnon's character is like, I did not know I was being filmed sure. that whole time. And that's where they get close to those, because they yeah. have those like those, like those one-on-one Zoom calls in a big room. And right. for some reason, this is something they have access to, and they don't just do in their own hotel room. Right. But that, that stuff made me question. I'm like, okay, so if this guy was hired by the studio to document the making of the movie... Then she did then know they, she was being filmed. Yeah. And then if they didn't it wouldn't the studio own the footage correct not him this wasn't guerrilla well, I, I documentary making. i think
1: the idea is that when the studio realized they couldn't make cliff b6 they knew they had to do something to make money off the film yeah. and of course they that's i think that's the implication with her character which is i know that i said some unflattering things But if this is going to pay off, I'm going to have to just eat that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but your point's well taken. Of course she knew she was being filmed. Sloppy. That's the whole point. It's the whole point. The movie is sloppy. And uh, maybe you, the listener, think, oh, they're asking too much. But no, I don't think we are. (laughs) I think if that's the point that the movie wanted to make... From somebody who's an accomplished filmmaker, mm-hmm. I mean, how many production and directing credits and writing credits does he have under his belt?
0: It's funny. It's like a, do- a dozen or more. David Duchovny's character in it is constantly trying to be like, "I'm the keeper of this franchise, yeah. and I'm going to try to do rewrites." And it's like, did anybody do that to Judd Apatow <laughs> during this movie? Be like, uh, Judd, this doesn't, this doesn't track for me. Or this, does, and it's like maybe, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, and. They just made the movie. They made. But
1: the I mean, movies. I also think uh, let's tone let's tone it down just a little bit. This isn't the end of Judd Apatow. He's gonna keep making movies, and and they're most of them are gonna be pretty good to the kind of people that enjoy a Judd Apatow movie.
0: There is a part of me though that gets concerned that is he entering his late stage Happy Madison part of his career? Where
1: sure. He's so big that he can. He thinks he can do whatever. He, he can, can he always wants
0: invite him. his friends in. Yeah. He can always afford to produce it. And he can kind of
1: just make whatever he wants. And in that way, is it sort of an indication of the bad, the worst parts of Hollywood where, you know, if somebody has a big enough name, we'll just throw money at them yeah. and they don't really have to make anything good. We'll just watch it. Well, and but, it, well but, and it,
0: worked, it, it probably still would work for me, even though I didn't like this
1: movie. I would probably watch the next Netflix course you would. Habitat movie. Of course you would. And I mean, but let's also say we haven't really touched on the fact that this is, is this his, this isn't his first Netflix movie, is it?
0: I don't know off the top of my head if boy he's we should have done our research produced huh? any more for Netflix. Uh
1: I would say, you know, Netflix has recently been going through some some struggles. <laughs> That's true. And is this an indication of that sort of Netflix has gotten into the habit of just throwing money at big names and seeing what sticks? And now that they've lost so much in, in the stock market, and now that they're they're finally they're losing subscribers, subscribers are they going to tighten their belts a little bit and say, actually, we can't just def- we can't just afford to throw money at anybody with a name and expect people to watch it? And because Netflix isn't like a a traditional movie studio where you and I could go see Cliff Beasts in theaters, and whether we like it or not, they still make money. Mm-hmm. But when you rely on a subscriber model, and you're relying on, we have to make stuff good enough to that people will trust us to come back for the next thing. I mean, I guess in that way, it's like a traditional movie studio, but they're not making nearly the money, and it's not safe money.
0: <laughs> and one piece for me that's a shame, too, is like, there's this movie, and there was Red Notice, which they claim is like the most streamed movie of all time, and it just... It annoys me because Netflix does seem to be at least the studio that's like taking risks and yeah. saying, hey, you're a filmmaker. You had a movie you want to make? Make that movie. It doesn't have to be attached to anything, whereas all the other bigger studios seem to be in a real franchise sequel remake right. realm. But the problem is if they don't make enough cool ones, then they'll not be able to make them anymore. And then we'll be back to nobody's making original right. movies anymore.
1: Yeah. Man, this is the, <laughs> this this took a nosedive from a fun Judd Apatow comedy to what's the state of the sort of movie industry and the stream and streaming services and, yeah. But I guess that's par for the course. <laughs> right. So, that, so that's the bubble. I guess to, to wrap up, if you are a person that enjoys watching Saturday Night Live and you don't care that it's just a bunch of different sort of funny scenes together, then you'll probably enjoy this movie if you take it for the fact that, like, It's just a bunch of kind of jokes strung together. If you are a Judd Apatow fan, this might make you sad, so don't watch it. I think that's your takeaway.
0: Yeah, I think that's the main takeaway is that it doesn't deliver on Judd Apatow, and then it doesn't deliver on its premise, and it's somewhere in between both of those. And it
1: can't quite figure out what it is.
0: Yeah, so that's... uh... That's it for us. Let us know uh, which side are you on for Judd Apatow? Do you like the the super bads, the forty-year-old virgins, the knocked ups of the world? Or are you like Daniel and you hate fun? <laughs> uh, you, as always That's one way of putting it. As always, you can uh you can let us know. You can tweet into us at Nerdisoch. That's N-E-R-D underscore A-S-S-O-C. You can also send us an email, nerdisosh at gmail.com. Let us know if you are one that likes Judd Apatow. Which one is your favorite? Thanks for listening.